Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. As we stand, let me pray for us. We've acknowledged, uh, Lord and God, that you are the Lord of the church. This is your church, not ours. We thank you that you care more for this church and the church worldwide than we ever will, even if we care deeply for this church. We thank you that you bought the church, as it says in your word, with your own blood. And so as we come asking this thing, we know you're going to answer it. We would ask for our renewing, indeed for our purifying, for our being united for us to endure, for indeed the Holy Spirit to bring about holy living, that we might indeed be nearer what a church should be. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord and for your praise and glory. Amen. Well, do please sit down. You might like to have a Bible in one hand, and uh, the in the other hand, or at least resting on your Bible, you might like to dig out uh, the sermon outline again. Uh, as I've said each week, you might not like taking notes, that's fine, but uh, I think you will find it helpful to have the, uh, the talk outline because then you'll see some quotes. Andy Fernley was giving me a hard time on Friday evening about the amount of quotes that I had. I knew I had to put even more in this week uh, just to keep it going. Um, there we are. In his, uh, here's a quote. In his excellent book, uh, A Better Story, uh, Glyn Harrison writes this, and again the quote is on the handout. Sex is important and can wreak fearful destruction. 
a roll call of otherwise perfectly rational and reasonable people, including well-known pastors and leading politicians, have tragically trashed their families and wrecked their careers for a night of it. And the emotional scars that disfigure the lives of thousands of children who've been taken into care from broken homes bear witness to its power to destroy. And so far from being a personal matter, issues of sex and the ordering of sexual relationships sit at the heart of God's big picture for the life of the world. In those words, Glyn Harrison captures part of why we've been dedicating these last weeks to consider issues of human sexuality. Sex is powerful. In the right context, is a beautiful thing. Expressing pure, faithful, covenant love, it should be celebrated. But in the wrong place, it is destructive. Having been in pastoral ministry for over a quarter of a century now, sadly, I can recount story after story after story of lives that have been wrecked and screwed up because of the misuse and abuse of sex. The trail of destruction that is left in the wake of an illicit affair or a pregnancy out of wedlock is life-shattering. And for me, being called to pastor into those kind of desperate situations is a very big dose of reality. And let me tell you, that reality is very different from the romantic Hollywood view of sex that is so often, well, so often appears to drive our way of thinking in this confused culture. Just check out the times you are sitting in a cinema or in your front room watching your television and you have found yourself actually urging immoral, ungodly sex to happen. As we watch the hero in the story fall in love with another character, we can find ourselves wanting them, willing them even, to end up in bed with someone who is not their spouse. In those moments, our hearts are actually longing for something that the Bible clearly tells us we should recoil against. And all that in the name of entertainment. What a confused world we live in. And of course what Hollywood doesn't show us is the utter carnage that's left behind. Even when a film or or a soap opera does attempt to show us something of the pain of family breakup, even when there are scenes of raging rows and tears, they can't capture for us the overwhelming heartbreak of a spouse that has been cheated on and the agony of children whose parents have been ripped apart. We don't see in the films or feel the hour after hour of sleepless nights or the day after day of gut-wrenching pain and agony of having been betrayed or the week after week of deep depression that descends upon those affected by an illicit affair because they can't see any way back. And filmmakers can't show us how even years after the event, bitterness and guilt continues to eat people up or indeed how the implications of the affair are still having to be worked out well beyond the time when there appears to be a new normal. Please don't believe the lie that sex in the wrong place is purely a personal decision. It really isn't. It hurts people. Many people, way beyond those immediately involved. Let's get real. It often leaves people damaged for the rest of their lives. So what we've been thinking about in these last weeks is very serious indeed. And we need to be clear about these things because there is no question when it comes to sex, as Christians, we find ourselves thinking very differently to the culture we live in. And that is a relatively new thing for British Christianity. For many years, our society has been 
Christian in its foundation and values, if not in its practice. And so for many years, what the church taught, what we might call the, the traditional view of sex and marriage, was accepted as wisdom in our society. But not any longer. Now we hold a minority view. No, we're not in the minority when it comes to transgender or homosexuality. But when it comes to marriage and cohabitation and divorce and sex before marriage, then we really are firmly in the minority. The Bible now is clearly at odds with our culture. And that means at least three things. First, it means we must be very clear what the Bible does teach on these issues. See, perhaps even before that, we have to be clear why we believe the Bible, but that's another thing altogether in a way. But then we must know what the Bible teaches and why God says what he says. Because the biblical view will be challenged and it won't be popular if you stand on it. You won't be popular. Now, I trust these last weeks have begun to help us to see exactly what the Bible does teach on these issues. But having done my best to teach the fundamental and foundational truths of the Bible on sex and sexuality, I've got to say now the onus is on you. It's down to you to know it well enough, to know well enough what the Bible teaches so that you can hold on to the truth personally when the struggle comes and so that you can explain it clearly to others. So listen again to the sermons online. Listen carefully with your Bible open and press the pause button along the way so you can stop and consider and internalize what the Bible teaches. Don't rush on too quickly. And in addition to reading the Bible, read the recommended books. Uh, In the latest edition of the Church Family News, which there are copies in the the, uh, end of the pews, I've suggested a book on every topic. We've got to do the hard work if we really want to know the issues here. I'm saying learn what the Bible actually teaches on these issues so you can stand firm when the world around you is saying something quite different. And so that you can stand solidly on the Bible even when the church at large is saying something different, as it is. Second, living in a society that has such a different view to the Bible means it's very easy to be distinctive. Now that's actually a very good thing. Look, I know most of us don't like to be different. We prefer to blend in with the culture. There are a few people who enjoy being different, but most of us, that's not the case. But that actually isn't the Bible's expectation for the Christian. The Bible expects us to be different, not the same. We should always be trying to find ways to declare the truth of the gospel, and living differently on this issue will help us do just that. I can think of a couple... Some years ago now, but not far enough back that I don't remember it, it was within the last decade, a couple who were students, been going out for a long time, made it very clear they weren't going to have sex before marriage, even though they were engaged. Had a very, very big impact on, um, on the culture around them, on the people around them. As far as I remember, they even had a piece in the, um, in the local newspaper. It was that striking. And we can make a real impact by doing this. Uh, You see, it's so different from years ago. Years ago, when my parents were growing up and going to church, their general morality looked very similar to those around them who didn't go to church, and not least of all in the sexual arena. 60 years ago in our society, it was generally accepted that sex outside marriage was wrong. Now, I'm not naive. I'm not suggesting that back then everyone waited until they got married before having sex. We've all seen Call the Medwife. We know that wasn't the case. 
I'm just saying it was frowned upon then, seen as wrong. To wait for sex until marriage was understood to be the right way to live, you see. And because so many British values were completely in line with Christian morality, it was difficult to live a life that was obviously and distinctively Christian. But now in this generation, in 21st century Britain, it's easy to live distinctively Christian life in all sorts of areas because our society has definitely rejected Christian truth and Christian morality. The point is this, in many ways it is easier to live distinctively these days and that will give us great opportunities. People notice when we live differently and often they are intrigued. Sometimes they're even attracted by the way we live because they realize that their way of life is not working for them. And so being different in the sexual arena will open up fantastic opportunities to speak of the gospel and to speak positively of a better way to live, to point people to the Lord Jesus who is better in every way, which again is why we've got to know what the Bible says so that when we're asked, we actually can tell them. The third way that we should respond to living in a society that is so different to the Bible is that we must, thirdly, you'll see on the handout there, live as a supportive, loving community. Now, it is this that I want to focus on this evening as we bring this series to a close. Throughout these past seven weeks, we've seen that these issues are issues for us, you see. This isn't just about, look at the world out there, oh, aren't they bad, isn't it hard for us in here living this way? No, it's an issue for us. It is not just the world out there that needs to hear God's ways, but many in here are struggling with marriage and singleness and same-sex attraction and pornography and gender dysphoria. And if we're going to be able to live distinctively from the culture around us, we need to be supporting one another in a loving, grace-filled community. You see... not just for us, but for unbelievers to move out of their non-Christian subculture and to live Christianly, if they can make that move to come among us, they will need to find here in the church a loving, supporting community that will help them and embrace them because it's going to be so different for them. Now, Ed Shaw explains this brilliantly in this book about how important the church lives differently and how we need to live to support one another. The plausibility problem. I've recommended this book many times in these last weeks. I'm going to recommend it again. And unashamedly, the thrust of what I'm going to say, if not all the details, uh, are inspired by the thinking in this book. So here's the big question for us this evening, and we are over the page on the handout now, if you haven't turned over Here's the big question. In the light of all that we've seen these last weeks, top of page two, here's the question. How must we be as a church? You need to read this book to really find that out, but I'm going to scratch the surface now. See, we've considered already this evening how socially destructive sexual sin is. It causes pain and hurts individuals, and it will have a devastating effect on society. Illicit affairs, single parenthood, cohabitation, same-sex marriage, all these things are contributing to the breakdown of the family. And the breakdown of the family will in time have a devastating impact on our society. It will take some years before we feel the effects and see just how bad it will be. But believe me, it will be bad. Because whenever we turn away from God and his ways, it is destructive. By contrast, God is doing something in the world to bring everything together, to unite everything, to repair the destruction. 
we finally got to the Bible. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9. Look at what God is doing in the world, in the universe. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. And he, uh, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ Here's the mystery, to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That is God's master plan for the world, to bring everything together because sin has pulled everything apart. God is reversing the effects of sin by bringing everything in heaven on earth together under Jesus Christ. Uh, Look again uh, on to chapter 1, verse 22, uh, bottom of the right-hand column of the page that you're on if you have a church Bible. Chapter 1, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet, that is, the feet of the Lord Jesus, and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, having raised Jesus from the dead, we see that uh, now God is bringing everything together. And he's doing it in the church. That's a surprise for many people. The church, us, the people of God, is the place where God is fulfilling now what will one day be a complete reality in the eternal new creation. When we were talking about this as a staff team on Wednesday, Ben Cooper put it beautifully as he said, the church is a safe haven in the chaos of the cosmos. We might go further and say that the church is the one place of safety in a world that is disintegrating. And that is what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 2 verses 11 to 17 that Heidi read for us so helpfully just now, We learn that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is uniting people who would never be able to live together in unity. In chapter 2, do you see it's Jew and Gentile. Did you hear that when it was being read? Jew and Gentile being brought together. People who hated each other. Who in Christ are united. Do you see what's going on? The world is pulling, uh, the, the sin is pulling people apart in the world. Jesus, in Jesus, everything is being put back together. We've seen this week the hatred in the world in the attack of, on Parliament in Westmin- and, uh, and on Westminster Bread, Bridge. Indiscriminately mowing people down. Hatred. The security services do their best to keep the peace, but they can't keep us completely safe. But in Christ, verse 15, God brings a full and lasting peace so that even the greatest of enemies can live together. See, in the church, God is bringing together what sin has pulled apart. So, chapter 2, verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, being a picture of people who really hate each other. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. See, Members of God's household, that's the wonderful truth about who we are. And that tells us two things about what we are and therefore what we must be. First, we are family, our first main point. Because that's who we are, that's what we must be. 
Again, I'm looking at the last word in chapter 2, verse 19, household. When we become Christians, we are brought into God's household. We are part of his family. You see it again in chapter 3, verse 14. We are to call God our Father. And chapter 3, verse 15, we are part of his worldwide family. Actually, more than that, we are part of his cosmos-wide family. And family is the dominant picture of the church in the New Testament. There are two other pictures of the church in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, the church is described as a building, the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And in chapter 1, verse 23, the church is described as the body of Christ. So there are other pictures in the New Testament of the church, temple, body, there are a number of them. But the dominant one in the New Testament is that the church is family. God is our father, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And understanding church as family then, and then living as family, is crucial, and not least of all, when we think about how we should live sexually. Let me explain. Ed Shaw writes very honestly in this book. I mean, it's wonderful the way he opens his heart to complete strangers like me who read this book. As a same-sex attractive man who believes that the Bible teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, he knows he will never be married. And that is extraordinarily painful for him. And not least of all, at many levels, but not least of all, when it comes to thinking about family. So he writes, I would love kids. I would like to get them the Playmobil pirate ship my parents never got me, despite many hints. I want to read Dogger with my own child as my mum and dad did with me. I've longed to weep my way through the end of Mary Poppins with my own daughter or son sitting beside me. Not having a family of your own is one of the real pains of, of being a same-sex attracted Christian man who wants to be faithful in living out that Christian life. It's tough knowing that you'll never have someone special to return home to at the end of the day. You'll never have someone special to grow old with. Of course, it's not just an issue for the person who's same-sex attracted. It's a struggle for the Christian who is heterosexual but remains single for the gospel. And perhaps for the Christian who's transgender. Not having a family of your own is one of the painful sacrifices of living a faithful Christian life. And Ed Shaw speaks honestly and and tenderly about it. But having spoken of his longing to be married and have children, Ed Shaw writes just six words that are extraordinarily powerful when you've read the previous bit. He says these six words, but I do have a family. And he goes on to talk about his church family in Bristol. And all the Christians he knows all over the country. But it is local church family, Emmanuel Church Bristol, who support him in the day-in, day-out struggle of life. And it is a struggle for him regularly, most days. And I tell you, to read this, it is very touching to read the stories of the way people within his church family love him and have opened their homes to him. So that it's not just a case of, oh yeah, I know theologically we're family. They are family. He's now part of their individual families. So he's like an uncle to children of Christians who've welcomed him into their family. 
And they do, welcoming into the family. It's not just a matter of inviting them around for Sunday lunch from time to time. They hang out together. That's what it means to be family. Just dropping around at any time, watching the telly together, going out on family outings together. So Ed Shaw writes these words, when church, fam- when church feels like family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. He doesn't at any point say it's easy. He just says that's how he can cope with it. He adds this, which is the flip side. The same sex attracted Christians I've met who are suffering most are those in churches that haven't even grasped this at all and that don't even notice these individuals. Now you see why I've said over and over through these weeks, this is our issue. We, Christchurch Forward, must get this right. We must be family. Certainly not see church as somewhere we go on Sunday. It's crucial if we're going to help people who are same-sex attracted or who are single for any reason, uh, divorced, uh, widowed, struggling with gender dysphoria, along with those who've never met the right person or those who've chosen to be single for the gospel. Uh, For all those people, we need to be family, don't we? No one should feel lonely. Drop round whenever you like. In another excellent book, uh, Kevin DeYoung writes this uh, sentence very simply. If we ask people to be chaste, we can only ask them to carry that cross in community. Too much to do on your own. Let's walk with you through it. Indeed, Kevin DeYoung goes on to challenge the church to think biblically about family. We'll not be able to live out being family as we should unless we uproot the idolatry of family that is so often rife in the church. So DeYoung writes this, a spouse and a minivan full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift and a terrible God. If everything in community revolves around being married with children, we should not be surprised when singleness sounds like a death sentence. It's helpful, that, isn't it? So you see, if we're going to live out all that we've been thinking about in these last weeks, we must, start, we must start to think and live differently as family. Family, secondly, uh, over the page on the handout, uh, identity. Again, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 that I'm thinking of. Uh, You see, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. That's not what you are anymore. But this is what we are if we're Christians, fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That's who we are, citizens of heaven, God's people, part of God's family. That is our identity. So as a Christian, I'm not first a white British man with Welsh roots. I am, verse 19, a citizen of heaven, first and foremost. As a Christian, I'm not first descended from William Williams, son of John Williams. Yes, it's true, William Williams. Who would have done that to him? Well, my my grandmother actually did that to him. Uh, But anyway, I'm not first and foremost descended from William Williams, son of John Williams. No, first, I am part of God's family. Above all things, I'm a Christian. I am in Christ. And that is very important when it comes again to all that we've been thinking about these last weeks. 
Again, Kevin DeYoung spells out the issue here. He writes, Nothing in the Bible encourages us to give sex the exalted status it has in our culture, as if finding our purpose, our identity, and our fulfillment rests on what we can or can't do with our private parts. See, uh, that's such a good quote when you think about it. So often we do find our identity in our sexuality or our marital status. Oh, even on Facebook, when we're, we're encouraged to tell all our virtual friends, friends when we've changed our status by announcing we're in a relationship. And that issue of status and identity is one of the big struggles for people who are single. When we give the impression that marriage and family are where we find fulfillment, then we reduce singleness to a sad second-rate existence. And then living as a single person is like being suspended in a twilight zone, a relational purgatory, a meaningless waiting room until our other half finally turns up to make us whole. Even the language, our other half. Till then I wasn't a complete person, do you see? It's awful. If that's how we view singleness, even though we never state it that boldly, it results in us believing that marriage is the promised land that we desperately need in order to be complete. Apart from that being fundamentally wrong, because the Lord Jesus Christ was the most complete person who ever walked this planet, and he was never married. So apart from it being fundamentally wrong, and so demeaning of singleness, do you see how it puts a burden on marriage that is too much for wedlock or a spouse to bear? No wonder marriages can't take the strain and falling apart if we've set them up as, you know, the the final place to reach. We've kind of made marriage something that only Jesus can be for us. Whenever we have our identity in the wrong place, it's not good for the thing we put it in and it's not good for ourselves either. It leaves us very unhappy and insecure. You see, if I'm striving for marriage, when I don't have that thing, I'm unhappy. I haven't got it yet. When I do have it, I'm deeply insecure because I might lose it. We must have a right view of identity to find our identity in Christ. That will then help us live faithfully in line with the Bible. So again, a few sort of outworkings of that. In the gay community, people's identity is bound up with their sexuality. As it is with the person who's transgender. It's one of the big issues when someone comes out, as they say. In coming out so often, not always, but so often identity is completely bound up with your sexuality. That is not good for anyone. It's not good for me to introduce myself as Paul, a heterosexual male. Simply not how I should want to identify myself. Our identity should be firmly rooted in Christ. And that is a very helpful and secure place to be. It's secure because it can never be taken from me. Being in Christ will be my status for eternity. And it's helpful because how I identify myself will affect how I live. So when I identify myself as a Christian, it helps me to live as a Christian. Again, Ed Shaw is extremely helpful on this and, again, extremely honest. Writing here how his identity helps him to think about how he lives. He speaks of looking 
for a trailer for a film where a man he finds attractive is half naked. And then after doing that, he writes, as I was repenting to my heavenly father, God, afterwards, what was the devil telling me? This is who you are, the sort of man who spends time lusting after brief glimpses of this man's torso. Call yourself a Christian? You can't be a Christian and like doing this. And then he perceptively writes, do take note of this on the handout. Where does the evil one always take the battle? Straight to my identity. That's where the battle is fiercest and that's why I need to hold on to my identity in Christ so much. You see, you can't be a Christian because you're doing this. Identity. Our identity affects the way that we live. So we have some serious work to do here as a church family. We must stop suggesting that marriage or sex is the place where we finally discover who we are. Actually, even if we don't believe that, the language we use often suggests it, as does shaping church life around the family unit. Now, please, in all of this, we mustn't go to the other extreme either. The family unit is not our invention. God designed it as he did marriage. Both family and marriage are good things, and so in the church, we do want to help people in their marriages. We do want to help people in parenting. But the point is, we mustn't give the impression that marriage and family is everything. What's more, when it comes to getting this issue of identity right, it's, just not, it's not just the way we talk about marriage and family that we need to watch. Middle-class British Christians find our identity in all sorts of things other than Christ. We find our identity in our, in our profession, in our postcode, in the size of our house, in what we've attained, our exam results, the uni we attend, our sporting achievements. And this whole thing of identity can be so important that when adults don't quite achieve what they aim for, when they haven't really found their identity in those things they looked for, they try to find their identity in their children's achievements. I'm thinking about the pushy parent in sport or education or career. It masquerades as wanting the best for your children. It's often the parents searching for their own identity because they didn't quite get it themselves, so now they're going to find it in, oh, my son played at Wimbledon. Here's the thing. If in the church family we're finding our identity in anything other than Christ, then what deep hypocrisy when we tell others that they shouldn't find their identity in their sexuality. But if we here at Christ Church Forward find our identity in Christ, then that will be a huge help to those who've been tempted to find their identity in their sexuality. So we've got to think biblically about identity and about church as family. And please, not just think biblically, but live differently. And finally, as we bring this series to an end, come with me to the end of the book of Ephesians. You see, the the book ends with talk of a spiritual battle that we're in. And I think I've heard most of you already turn over the handout, but if you haven't, we're now on the back page and the battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 8. Now, many of you will know Ephesians 6, 10 to 8. As Paul writes these verses, he's obviously not only thinking about the battle to think and live right sexually. That's not all he's thinking about, but it is part of what he's thinking about. You see, the second half of chapter 5 is all about marriage. The first verse in chapter 6 is about parents and children. Family life and sexuality is part of the spiritual battle we're in. 
and all of us, sexually perverted sinners that we are, all of us need to fight the battle if we're going to get this right. William Taylor writes, some of us may not have personally been exposed to some of the sexual sin that others have, but all of us will have thought things, seen things, imagined things, done things, and had things done to us in one way or another of which we are deeply ashamed. I've never met a Christian man, a single or married, who's being honest with me, who's never struggled with sexual temptation of one sort or another. We're all in a spiritual battle. And it is a battlefield that Satan loves to engage us in because sex is powerful. And it can cause such destruction and pain. And Satan is hell-bent on death and destruction. He wants to turn the Christian away from Christ. He does that through sex. If he can't get us to give up following Jesus, he wants to render the Christian ineffective. He does that through sex. And he loves it when he can bring down or make ineffective whole church families. He does that through getting leaders to fall sexually or vast sways of the church family to get caught up in pornography. And sometimes he does it with whole denominations so that all they seem to talk about for countless hours and disagree over and fight over are sexual issues so that we can't focus on the task of proclaiming the gospel. Isn't that the spiritual battle we're in? But listen, Satan's not just out to get Christians or churches. He wants to wreak havoc wherever he goes and he likes to do it through whole societies. And he's doing that in Britain now in this sexually confused culture. So how do we stand against him? Well, from verse 13 onwards, we've got to put on the whole armour of God, but especially as we close, verses 17 and 18. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Why do I land there? Well, because we, when we began this series, we saw that at the heart of the issue is the temptation to doubt God's word. So we must have the word of God in our hand if we're going to fight this battle. And we must spend time on our knees in prayer. And then only then can we stand. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope this isn't the end. It's the end of my doing talks on sex for a while, but I hope this isn't the end of the series, but just the beginning of us working it out. Let us stand on the word of God. Let us pray in the Spirit. And together we will be strong and able to resist all the devil's schemes to bring us down in the sexual arena. And as we stand firm, may it be to the glory of God, for the good of his church, and for the salvation of many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much that as we've seen over these seven weeks, your word speaks right into our situation. That word written hundreds of years ago is as relevant today as it ever was.
Thank you that your enduring word um, equips us for life in the 21st century. Thank you that your enduring word is a good word. Thank you that you are a good God. And we pray you'd help us to believe those two great truths as we go from here and as we think about this subject in the future and perhaps especially when we're tempted to change. May we know as we're going to sing now that Jesus is better than anything else that will pull at our hearts. We pray we'd believe that and we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus.